History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. History Notes reports on the people, places, monuments, and events that have shaped our society. Sometimes we examine what has occurred long ago, and at times we look at history happening now. Grab a pad, a pen, or a digital device and get engaged with History Notes. Well, thank you, everyone. My name is Rodney Dawson. I'm the Curator of Education here at the Greensboro History Museum. Again, I want to say welcome. And our panelists today include Dr. Allison Fredette, Erica Rencher, and Marsha Fouch. Dr. Allison Fredette earned her BA and an MA in History from West Virginia University and completed her PhD in American History at the University of Florida. Dr. Fredette is an Assistant Professor of the History Education Program at Appalachian State University, located, of course, in Boone, North Carolina. Erica Rencher is an active member of the Greensboro Historical Teachers Alliance, as well as a public educator, a speaker, a vocalist, and an activist working with young folk, churches, and neighborhoods to build beloved communities. Marsha Fouch is a retired educator with 30 plus years in the Minneapolis public school system. Plus, Ms. Fouch is an active member of the Greensboro Historical Teachers Alliance. Ms. Rencher and Ms. Fouch will discuss the curriculum developed to teach the 1979 Greensboro Massacre, as well as the Truth and Reconciliation Council. However, we'll start off this morning discussion with Dr. Fredette. Once again, welcome, and Dr. Fredette, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney, so much for having me. Um, I'm going to share my screen for a second so that I can do my presentation. All right, thank you all so much for being here. Um, I'm excited to talk about um, some general ideas for why we should teach controversial issues in the classroom, especially in history classrooms, um, tips on how to do it, and some specific strategies. I should say, first of all, um, I have about 25 minutes to talk, and obviously this is a subject um, that I could go on about for a long, long time. So this is kind of just a primer to some ideas to get you started, um, but it's, it's not gonna obviously encompass everything for this subject. Um, I wanna tell you for a second, a little bit about myself and how I got interested in this subject. So um, as you heard, I teach in the history education program at Appalachian State. Um, I also have a PhD um, and my field of study is specifically women's and gender history and uh, 19th century Southern history. So academically, I'm really interested in issues of gender, sexuality, and race, uh, which are often intersecting with a lot of these controversial issues. Uh, about four years ago, I designed a class at Appalachian State for our history education majors, as well as our public history majors called Teaching Controversy in History. You can see one of my flyers here. Um, a little hint of many of the, the subjects that we engage in there. And so I've been developing and changing this course over the past four years. Um, and a lot of the content I'm gonna give you is from what I've learned through teaching that class and through the students that are in that class with me. All right, so first of all, uh, I, I generally like to start with a pitch on why it's important to teach controversial history. Um, I think that it's something that we all get very nervous to do. Um, and sometimes it may seem easier to avoid. Um, so I like to basically give you why it's really important to kind of, I know it's, it makes you anxious, but why you should do it anyway. First of all, um, for me, it, it, it satisfies a goal that I have broadly when thinking about teaching history, which I think it's really important when thinking about uh, the curriculum that we should be teaching students that history isn't just what happened in the past, but it's the stories we tell about what happened in the past. And those stories themselves are, are written by people with biases, perspectives that come from the time and place in which they are writing, the backgrounds that they have come from. Um, and so we should be teaching them that history is multiple narratives. Um, it's based on these primary sources, but we should teach them that kind of fluidity and that complication. Um, you can see I have a reference here to Hamilton, um, who lives, who dies, who tells our stories. So the idea of who are, who are telling some of these stories, what stories do we hear? And so I think if we talk about controversial issues, which uh, by its nature, look at multiple perspectives, it allows us to get that broader history goal. Second, um, it's really important for thinking about preparing students to participate in this, be good citizens, right? Um, this is something that the National Council for Social Studies talks a lot about and is something that a lot of K through 12 teachers 
of social studies really say is one of their primary goals. Um, so knowing this controversial history and then knowing how to discuss it with each other is really important. Uh, so for example, I took this statement uh, from uh, the National Council for Social Studies. They issued the statement this summer in the midst of a lot of the protests that were happening, as well as some of the criticisms of American history right now coming from uh, Washington DC, in which they really emphatically say the National Council for Social Studies believes in a curriculum that has multiple approaches, um, hard history, controversial topics, and addressing these false narratives. So it's something that uh, our kind of um, premier institute, our premier uh, organization really thinks that we need to address. I also think it's important to teach students about how to disagree and debate respectfully with one another, whatever the topic is that they may be um, engaging with. And it's also important to expose them to a diversity of ideas. Um, they may come from a, a community, a household in which they're getting uh, very similar ideas. They may think they know something because they've heard a lot of people talking one way about it. And it, their minds may be blown when they come into a classroom and find that there are people who disagree with them. And so it's important for them to at least learn about what those other perspectives are. They don't have to convert to those ideas by any mean, means, but they should at least be aware that there are people who don't necessarily agree with the perspective they have grown up with. And then I think um, one thing that's really important for me is thinking about a student engagement. Um, I think that teaching controversial history helps better engage students in our classes. This is the history that they often wanna know. And there's often a frustration when students leave history classes and learn histories that they didn't get in their K through 12 schools. And they feel like, why did I miss that? Um, and so I also think about this uh, better engagement when I think about the inquiry model for K through 12 schools. Um, when we think about doing inquiry-based lessons and writing compelling questions for our classes, a lot of those compelling questions ask students open-ended uh, open -ended questions. They are thought-provoking um, and they require them to support and justify positions. Same thing you could call compelling questions, essential questions as well. So these here are a series of essential questions that I have gotten from the book, literally called Essential Questions by McTie and Wiggins, um, as well as a couple that my students wrote themselves in the Intro to History Education class last spring. So if you think about these questions, is there ever a just war? Was American expansion, uh, expansion justified? How do we balance the rights of individuals with the common good? Where does the power of the people stop in a democracy? Should liberty be limited? Some of these can touch on controversial things, but they're more likely to draw students in. They feel authentic. They feel real to them. They feel important. Um, and so I think that's really important when thinking about student engagement. Similarly, I, I think that teaching controversial history is just better history. It's a more complete story. Uh, so for example, if you teach World War II and never talk about Japanese internment, you have not told the whole story of World War II. Um, it is something that can involve a lot of controversial issues, thinking about civil liberties um, and how uh, we have, uh, as the United States, has dealt with uh, that issue during wartime. But if we're not talking about Japanese internment, we're leaving out a critical story. Similarly, one that's covered much less um, is the Lavender Scare, uh, which took place during the Red Scare during the Cold War. Um, and was basically at the same moment as the federal government was seeking out um, and firing communists in the federal government, they were doing the same to LGBTQ plus people in the federal government. So you certainly talking about the larger picture of what is happening at this point includes more people in the story and it's just a more complete version of history. Um, as a side note, this also happened in education as well. Um, through the Johns Committee, for example, in Florida. So these are stories that we don't necessarily hear and they're more complete picture. So again, I think thinking about the Greensboro massacre, I was just talking yesterday to someone who grew up in Greensboro and was saying, I didn't learn this in school. Um, I didn't learn it until I was an adult. So I think that students want to hear these stories and when they get out of school and hear, wait a minute, I grew up here, but I never learned this history. It makes them it sows these seeds of doubt in what they did learn. So we don't want that as teachers. We wanna give them the most complete picture we can.
All right, so general tips on how to teach these controversial issues. Um, first of all, absolutely be prepared. Um, obviously, being a good teacher in general involves a lot of preparation. We all know that. But if you're going to teach something that's controversial, you need an extra level of preparation. You need to first look at your course and say, okay, well, what are the areas I think might cause controversy? Then when you actually are going to teach that issue, you need to be extra prepared. You need to have done all the reading. You need to be able, you, you can't necessarily answer all the students' questions, but you wanna be able to address as many of it, those as you can. Um, you need to know your students. Um, I don't think that you should approach a controversial issue on day one. You should get a sense of your classroom, your students, their backgrounds, their parents, the community, so you need to have a certain comfort level with your students and a certain knowledge and understanding of them before you can approach it. Um, similarly, you need to prepare uh, your administrators. So if you're going to teach something that may be controversial, loop in administrators, um, explain to them why you're doing it, how you're doing it. And then if there are any complaints, which hopefully there won't be, then you can basically say, I've talked about this with you know, the principal and here's why we think this is a good idea. So you can kind of pre prevent, present a unified front. Um, two, you should know your goals. Um, so for example, thinking about teaching a controversial issue, do you want your students to reveal their own beliefs or do they model others? So in other words, is what you're trying to teach them a kind of critical consciousness do you want them to basically know how to come to their own conclusions and how to respectfully defend those conclusions against people who may disagree with them? That's one goal that you may have. And that requires a different type of teaching than another goal, which is to basically critically understand in a more detached way, the variety of perspectives on a, on a, on a certain issue. So in that sense, that that sort of goal requires you to say, all right, we're gonna look at all the different perspectives, we're gonna analyze, understand where they came from, but you're not necessarily having students say what they believe about something. Um, and we talk a lot about this in the controversies class, which issues we feel like are best for having students reveal their perspectives and their beliefs, and which ones we feel like are better served by having them just understand and modeling other people's perspectives. But definitely know which of those you want and what you're trying to accomplish before you start talking about these things. Then make sure that your controversial content relates to the course content and goals. So don't teach controversy for controversy's sake. Uh, know that, again, this is the history I want to teach. These are the standards I want to teach. And it will, again, help you to persuade people who may be reluctant about you teaching these issues that they are important. Um, one thing that uh, some students have suggested in the controversies class I know that I think is a really good one is the idea of at the beginning of a semester having a sort of syllabus or a list of topics and readings that you're going to cover during the, the semester um, and then send it home with them and have the parents sign it. And so that way you can say to parents if something comes up, well, this is something that we kind of all agreed at the beginning of the semester, these were the things we were going to cover. So you have parent buy-in that way. Um, similarly, when thinking about how it relates to content and goals, use the standards. So here on the screen right now, I have two eighth grade social studies standards um, and two uh, American history two standards. Um, both, uh, all four of these are designed for a curriculum in which you were teaching the Greensboro massacre. Um, and again, they would very, the Greensboro Massacre would very easily fit within these standards that you're already required to teach as a North Carolina social studies teacher. Um, and so make sure it relates to the course content and goals, but use things like the standards to your advantage. There are many places in them in which they want you to engage with these topics. Um, then next, create ground rules and enforce them. So this is a sort of idea of have a kind of a contract with this is how we are going to debate. You come up with the, you can come up with those unilaterally, you can come up with those as a class, agree on them, post them somewhere where everyone can see them so that as you're arguing, as you're doing a debate or a discussion, you can say, let's remember that we've all agreed to this. 
they often will have things like uh, what is permitted in terms of the language you're going to use, the rhetoric you're going to use. Do you have to use sources? So you could say at any point, you know, you know, John, did you cite a source here? What's your source? Should you lead with I statements or should you avoid I statements? Avoiding ab ad hominem arguments, right? Attacking an argument, not the person. So all of these sorts of things. One thing I like a lot is to talk about using tentativeness. So encouraging students not to argue from a position of authority, like I know that this is it, but to, to know that knowledge itself is tentative. So all of these things to kind of create um, a more productive discussion. Then be careful about your own attitudes and actions, right? You wanna model this behavior for your students yourselves. And of course you, got a, you are not an empty vessel as well. You have biases and perspectives and beliefs. So think very carefully about what you are willing or what you should share with your class and how much you wanna to keep to yourself. Um, are you impartial in this? Which is usually how I participate in a, a controversial discussion, although there is debate in the literature on this. Um, and so thinking about how you feel about this and how you are going to engage with students who may not, who may not agree with you. Be patient. So this is a skill, like anything we teach, being able to civilly and respectfully discuss a, con discuss a controversial issue is something that's gonna take time and it's gonna take practice. The first time that your class tries to debate something, it may not go well. That doesn't mean you should never approach a controversial issue again. It just means that they're gonna need to keep practicing. They're gonna need to go back and revisit the ground rules. They're gonna need to revisit the sources um, and they're gonna need to practice that again. Because what you are doing, they're not ready yet necessarily to have the controversial discussion. Um, you are helping teach them. And the goal then would be to put more people out in the world to be able to have this controversial uh, discussion. And then debrief. This is really critical. And I think something that's often skipped over and because we are, as teachers, we're always running on low on time. I know I'm always behind on what I'm teaching, but I think it's really important when you've talked about something controversial and you've had moments that got tense and you had people reveal personal beliefs and personal stories, to debrief, um, to basically step back from what they were talking about and say, what just happened? How do we feel about it? Um, be really open and honest. I often do this. I have my students kind of get in a circle um, and really talk through what, what worked, what didn't. I, I try to create in that moment a space in which they can be critical of the, the lesson. I, I try to be open. This is a thing we're all learning right now. Um, and I found that really a helpful space for students. So those are the general tips. And I'm now gonna give you four different strategies that you can use, some kind of techniques that I think are really helpful. Um, and I did not invent these techniques, but they are all techniques that I've compiled and I found really useful. So the first strategy is called disagree with grace statements. This is from the Southern Poverty Law Center. They, they have developed a ton of fascinating or of really helpful and fascinating um, uh, lesson plans and strategies under their teaching tolerance. Um, and this one is basically a strategy to use in discussions. And again, you can take these kind of sentences or beginnings of sentences put them up on a board and require that your students use these. Um, the big idea here is that using but kind of shuts down the conversation and using and hears and continues a conversation. Um, I also kind of like to think of this as like improv. If you've ever, I've never done improv, but if you've ever read about improv, there's the idea of like, you always are supposed to be saying yes and, so it continues the improv. <laughs> it's the same idea here. You're right, this is how I feel. That's true for you, what's true for me is something else. So you're, you're acknowledging, but you're continuing on. Um, you're showing them kind of respectful ways to engage with each other um, and to have this respectful um, dialogue. Another one that I think is really important is called the five minute rule. This is from uh, the Center for Teaching from Vanderbilt University. 
So this is the idea, and many of us have probably had this perspective. Sometimes you go into a discussion and say you are you are doing the type of controversial um, controversial issues lesson in which they are supposed to say their own perspective. Um, and you suddenly find that everyone in the class or a majority of people in the class all have the same perspective. I know I did this my first year teaching at Appalachian State. Um, I was teaching uh, the American Civil War and we were having a discussion about the Confederate flag. And I realized that everyone in the, in the class um, felt the same way about this discussion. We were actually having a discussion about um, the flag uh, in South Carolina, which at that point was still flying uh, in front of the state house. Um, and at that point, I was, it was my first year and I thought, well, I guess that my role here as the teacher is to play devil's advocate, right? So everyone agrees with one perspective, I will argue from that other perspective. And I did that, and I mean, largely it was fine, but thinking about it later, I realized I don't necessarily, I don't like that way of doing it. I am the, I am the person in the classroom teaching from a position of power and authority. And so it takes on a different tone when I am arguing a certain argument. Now it becomes, you know, the instructor's uh, perspective. So instead what you can do when you have that moment is say, all right, for five minutes, everyone has to basically argue from the, uh, the opposite perspective. Um, tell us what people who disagree with what you have been saying, how would they make this argument? So it's basically a way to bring those, that argument into the classroom when it's not organically there. It's also a good way if you have two students who have one side of the perspective, you don't want to pit them against the rest of the class. This way, instead of forcing one or two students to make the argument, you have the whole class take it on. And it's a good way to build critical thinking skills, right? Because they have to think about what would other people argue and what is, what is good about that argument. Um, so the next uh, strategy is called the fast food rule. Now I have to give a little caveat here, which is that I originally read this in a parenting book because I have um, two young children and I had a child at the time who was two so I was reading a book on toddlers. Now I'm not at all saying your students are toddlers. Um, but when I read this, it was around the time I was teaching a controversial issues class. I thought, well, this makes a lot of sense in terms of talking about controversies. And the idea is when you go to McDonald's and you order something at the drive-through that the person working the drive-through um, has to repeat it back to you. I would know I worked at McDonald's and I worked the drive-through. Um, you have to say, you know, you order, I'd like the chicken McNuggets and fries. And the person has to say, so you want the chicken McNuggets and the fries. So the fast food rule basically says if students are having a discussion, they have to repeat back what the previous person said before they can make their argument. So they have to say, all right, well, I'm hearing that, you know, you think X, Y, and Z because of X, Y, and Z, but here's what I think. And I think this is really useful because a lot of students will say that they spend a lot of class time instead of listening to other people, they're sitting there thinking, okay, here's my point. When am I going to make my point? When is it my turn to talk? When do I get to say what I want to say? And they're not listening to what the other students are actually saying. So I think this is a really good strategy. The other, the other two strategies are good for getting students to um, engage respectfully to think about what the argument, other arguments are. And this one gets them to, to listen, to do some active listening as well as participating. Um, and then uh, I also have used the fishbowl technique, which many of you I'm sure have heard of. Um, there's kind of two ways to go about this. The image you see on the screen here is a depiction of an open fishbowl, which is the idea that you have an outer circle and an inner circle. Uh, the inner circle has an empty chair only the inner circle can talk at a time, the outer circle has to listen. And as soon as uh, students want to engage and participate, they can move into the inner circle. Um, I prefer for controversies a closed circle, which basically says you divide the students um, based on what they feel about a topic. So the outer circle is one opinion, the inner circle is another. Um, and then you basically say the people in the outer circle have to listen to what the people in the inner circle think, and then they switch. And again, 
it is something that forces students to listen to each other's perspectives. And the other thing you can add to it is you can say when you move into the inner circle, first thing the outer circle has to do when they move into the inner circle is summarize what the arguments were from the other side. Um, it also sometimes is a good way for people who agree with each other to realize the ways in which they agree on the big things, but they disagree on little things. Um, so that's closed fishbowl and open fishbowl. And then another strategy, which my students love, is the silent seminar or the big paper approach. This is the idea that you use a stimulus, an image, most often a question, whatever, um, and then you have students engage in a debate that's totally silent. They're not allowed to talk. Everything has to be written. So I did this uh, this past spring in my American history class at uh, App State. I used this image. I told them nothing about it. I literally just put this image up on some paper. And then I told them uh, to basically write what they just write. And you can see, as you look through here, they get into some really important debates here. They cover a lot of the kind of talking points of the, 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 the monuments debate. And they did it, it took about 10 minutes, I would say. There was not a word, you could hear a pin drop in the classroom, but it was probably the most productive discussion I've had of this. The silent seminar is a really good uh, strategy for doing something else that's important in teaching controversy, which is um, slowing down students thinking. This is the idea that when you bring up a controversial issue, if you say, for example, you know, today we're gonna to talk about Roe v. Wade, you don't want your students necessarily jumping out with the first thing that comes into their head. You want them to slow down and be thoughtful and deliberate. So by writing everything down, it slows down their thinking. And then the last thing I will say, uh, which is a good segue, I think, into hearing about the actual curriculum uh, that the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance has developed is use primary documents. Obviously, teaching history using primary documents is incredibly vital anyway, but especially when you're thinking about teaching controversial issues, you want to give students some evidence to base their discussion on. You want to show them what the multiple perspectives are. So here on the screen, I have a couple of images uh, I pulled very quickly uh, looking for primary documents on the Greensboro massacre itself. But use those pieces of evidence and say, all right, now we're going to analyze this and you need to use this in your discussion. So again, the controversy doesn't become a matter of gut opinion or I heard this or my you know, uncle says this, but what are the documents telling us? What, are they, what do we learn about people in the past? What do we learn about this event? What do we learn about this debate from the actual sources? Um, so I think that's really, really vital. Um, I cannot say enough how many times I think that using good primary documents are really important. Another strategy that I've used for this is called save the last word for me, which is that you basically have students read these primary documents and they have to come in, um, their kind of ticket into the class is two quotes that they thought were the most important quotes from these primary documents. And then they begin the discussion by basically saying, why did you pull these quotes out? So they're immediately rooting their discussion in the documents themselves. So to bring that all to a close, I would say at the end of the day, though, I think what's really important is thinking about the fact that different controversies call for different strategies, approaches, and techniques. Um, you need to, again, think about what your goals are, but also think about how it's gonna, your students are going to interact with it. So for example, primary documents are really important, and they do something they help you avoid something that I think a lot of people do when they talk about controversies, which is they go directly to simulations. This is the idea that, okay, well, I'll have students kind of take on the role of these people, but there is a lot of debate about this in, in the teaching of controversial issues and, and a lot of um, important scholars have said, this should not be done. Um, and I'm generally with them. Don't do simulations when you talk about traumatic uh, events things like the Holocaust or slavery, they are inauthentic. They, the, the idea of a simulation is now you understand what it was like, but we can never obviously understand what it was like to have been enslaved in the South in the 19th century. 
Similarly, thinking about who, what they are going to basically simulate. So I think, for example, the Greensboro Teaching Alliance has given, given us this really good primary document-based curriculum where we analyze and understand these controversial perspectives, but we're not necessarily taking on and, and stating those as our own. So for example, if you were gonna do the Greensboro massacre and you did a simulation, you would potentially have students in the classroom who are taking on the role of Klansmen. And you really, I mean, that is not necessarily something you wanna do. A lot of my students always say, I wanna avoid when I'm teaching a controversial issue being the person that's in the local news story. Um, so I think that's really important to think about. And again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use these primary documents. We definitely need to read these and there's rich stuff here, but we don't necessarily need to reenact it. Um, so thank you for listening and I will pass it on to my fellow panelists. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To learn more about this podcast and many more, visit our website at www.greensborohistory.org. Now let's listen in to History Notes. Um, okay, so um, we are here. My name is Marsha Fouch. I'm here to talk about the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance and to clarify that we're going to talk about a unit that we created about the Greensboro Massacre and the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission Report, which I'm going to refer to as a TRC uh, for brevity. So we're not experts on the Greensboro Massacre, but we feel like we've worked with people who are, who are experts, including some of the survivors to craft this unit. So I'd like to give you some background about the Greensboro Massacre, the TRC process, and the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance, and then Erica will share the specifics about the unit and the pilot that she did with her students. Um, first, I'm going to attempt to summarize what happened in 1979. On November 3rd, 1979, there was a rally and parade organized by a group of young people who were labor organizers for the Workers' Viewpoint Organization and later became the Communist Workers' Party. The parade was to be followed by an educational conference about labor conditions in local textile mills. This was a highly committed group of people who were trying to improve conditions in the mills for black and white workers. They had clashed with the Klan and Nazis earlier in the summer in China Grove. The police knew that the Klan and Nazis were coming to this rally and that they, the Klan and Nazis were armed. In fact, there was a police informant that was in the Klan and told the police that it would be a bloodbath and that the rally and parade should be canceled. But instead the marchers were not told that the Klan and Nazis were coming. And the police who were scheduled to meet the organizers at the start of the rally did not show up. Instead, 11 carloads of armed Klan and Nazis did show up, opened their trunks full of guns and killed the five people pictured here and injured 10 others. The five that were killed included Jim Waller and Mike Nathan, who were Jewish and medical doctors, Sandy Smith, who was African-American and the president of the student organization at Bennett, Bill Sampson, who was white and had a master's of divinity degree from Harvard, and Cesar Casse, who was a Cuban immigrant. They were all working here to unite people and make Greensboro a better place. After the massacre, the narrative quickly changed and the massacre, which was first named an ambush, became identified as a shootout between two fringe groups. But this was not the truth because the people killed had been working in the community and had deep connections here in Greensboro. But the context is important. This was at the end of the Vietnam conflict. They were affiliated with the Communist Party and one of the main reasons it was hard to get justice for these murders is because of the, because of the anti-communist sentiment at the time in the United States. Okay. Um, so there were two criminal trials with all white juries and all the gunmen were acquitted in a civil suit in which one of the widows received a settlement. And so the survivors and members of the community that knew what happened were not satisfied with the outcome of these trials or the false narrative that was being spread. And they began to think of ways to get a more thorough investigation. So in 1999, they decided to pursue a truth and reconciliation process to not only get at the truth, but to also begin a healing process here in Greensboro. This was modeled after the TRC process that South Africa had just completed in 1996 after the end of apartheid. The Greensboro Truth and, Reconcilia truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed with the mandate to examine the causes sequence and consequences of the events of November 3rd, 1979. 
It was formed in the spirit of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission's motto, without truth, no healing, without forgiveness, no future. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was part of that truth process in South Africa, visited Greensboro twice and people from Greensboro went to South Africa to learn about the process there. Um, this is a photo of Archbishop Tutu seated in the center meeting with the local task force members of the Greensboro TRC project at Elon College, which includes the former mayor Carolyn Allen to his left and the Johnsons from Beloved Community Center to the right. The important thing for me about this TRC process is that it addressed a horrible event with a restorative justice model in a very democratic way with community input from a wide swath of Greensboro. It was a significant undertaking. It was the first and only TRC process of its kind that has been done in the US to date. And in May, 2006, the TRC report was presented to the public. It's more than 500 pages long and has more than 30 recommendations in a number of areas. And one of the recommendations was for students to learn about the Greensboro massacre in the Guilford County Schools. And this is where we come in. Um, we are the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance. We're a community-based grassroots group made up of educators, organizers, and survivors of the no November 3rd, 1979 Greensboro massacre. We began meeting in January, 2018 to address an unmet recommendation by the Greensboro TRC report. The recommendation states that students in Guilford County Schools should learn about this historic event as part of their education. The next uh, thing is my why. Why did I um, decide, get interested and get involved with this project? <laughs> this is a picture of um, me in Peru with my friend Patty and my other friend Chris on the left. She's a retired teacher from Minneapolis and I am on the right, and we worked with Patty's son about 25 years ago. So this picture was taken at a museum dedicated to the 20-year conflict in Peru. The museum is called La Lume, which stands for the Place of Memory, Tolerance, and Inclusion. It's a space for educational and cultural commemoration. It houses the history of violence in Peru between 1980 and 2000. <clears throat> um, and during that time, 50 to 70,000 people were disappeared or killed during a conflict that was similar to a civil war in Peru. The top floor of this museum is dedicated to the TRC process that was done in Peru. And so that, and then the other slides are from the museum. The top one is a woman named Maria Elena Moyana. She was a young activist that was killed during the conflict. And the right are some scarves that hang down that have the names of those that were disappeared or died. The things that really stuck out for me in Peru, Peru regarding their conflict and TRC process were that they were acknowledging this violence that had happened, that they were proud of the TRC process that they'd done, and that they, they were committed to healing and remembering so this would never happen again. Um, and later I found out that the Johnsons who are survivors from, the Green, from Greensboro had visited Peru to find out about the TRC process in Peru. So I, I knew about the Greensboro massacre and the TRC process from my best friend and I was planning to move to Greensboro. And when I began to see this, it just seemed like uh, the stars were lining up re regarding Greensboro and Peru and me, and I, but I didn't know where it was going. Um, and so by the time Charlottesville happened in 2017, I, 2017, I had moved to Greensboro and as you may remember, there was a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the alt-right showed up in droves with guns and lit torches and chanted racist slogans. And there were counter-protesters who showed up as well to protest the racism. Um, and these people who were protesting the racism were threatened and beaten while police and security guards looked the other way. The police didn't stop anything until one of the white supremacists rammed their car into a crowd of people who were protesting and one woman was killed and 28 injured. Here in Greensboro, everyone was talking about Charlottesville, having rallies and saying, wow, this could might happen in this could happen in Greensboro. And while there were those of us who knew the history saying, this already happened in Greensboro. And it was at this time in 2017 that I saw the full page 
TRC report and read the recommendations, which included education. This is the recommendation from the Greensboro TRC report. It also mandates that the, <coughs> that the TRC report be included in it, in the curriculum. And there's a more detailed description in the report about what should be included. And so this idea about a curriculum began to percolate. Um, and I was talking with other activist teachers and looking, I did find a lesson done by teaching tolerance, uh, one lesson about the Greensboro massacre. And we decided to schedule a meeting with the community members and those close to the Greensboro massacre to determine if this was a time to address this recommendation because the 40 year anniversary was coming up in 2019. And so we had our first meeting on January, in January of 2018, and we decided that yes, this was the time and we began to create, create the unit. We developed a two week, 10 day unit, and we also have a three day mini unit. Um, we have a website and we decided to focus on eighth grade social studies because we thought the lo this local history should be available to all students. And it also fits in like Dr. Fredette said, it fits in with the standards for eighth grade social studies. One of the great things about this topic is that there are still many primary sources that you can tap into here. And there are also a lot of local resources. And so Erica will tell you more about that. You're not, you're muted Erica. <laughs> um, I thought I pressed unmute, but I didn't see my face pop up. Hi, everyone. I'm Erica, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about uh, my why. I'm a public educator and I'm a um, former teacher here in Guilford County. Um, this pilot was done in an African American studies class. Um, I only, it's 99% um, students of color. I had one white student. Um, and it was uh, it was done in this class uh, for many reasons. Many of you on this call uh, know that um, indigenous and ethnic studies are not often mandated um, in uh, curriculum and state standards. It's it's what's called an elective, so a student does not have to learn that history if a student does not choose um, to, and so. Um, that in itself is another webinar, but we're going to stick to this webinar. And, and one of the advantages of that um, is that as a, a teacher, an activist teacher, um, I have a, um, a more freedom in the classroom to teach in a way that the students can embody, can, can have an embodied experience um, that the students can um, tap into, you know, their why for this. Oftentimes when you are structured towards a standardized test, you don't have that time. Um, I was excited to teach this because um, I believe, and, and I, I appreciate Dr. Fredette's uh, offering of the different strategies. And, and I, I often use the strategy of embodied learning. And I believe that when a student um, learns truth, um, that truth automatically sets them on a, on a path to freedom. And no matter what that student um, uh, disposition or not dispositional or what, what that student's location is. Um, it sets them on, on a path. I'm also um, very excited to be a part of the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance um, and, and was excited to pilot this because I'm personally connected to uh, two of the survivors now actually um, many more of them but in my initial connection came through uh, Reverend Nelson and uh, Joyce Johnson. So um, the standards, as Dr. Fredette said earlier, um, the standards, uh, there's about um, six pages of standards that sort uh, here in North Carolina that, that sort of mirror each other, just changing out the language of a particular minority group. So you have a Latin American um, standards, you have African American studies, you have Native American studies, and that I think might be the only um, elective courses, if I'm not, um, mistaken around this cultural elective um, course standards for North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. And um, 
obviously you can apply this history, this, this controversial subject of the 1979 Greensboro massacre to these standards on the screen. So um, I was able to kind of pull these standards and use them, um, especially around like making sure as I'm um, in the machine of public education that I'm meeting the standards that uh, need to be met. So, yeah, so teaching the unit, what I do, um, really I try to do it in all my classes. It's easier than in some than others, but I really try to come come at the um, at the class from students understanding themselves first um, and where, you know, who they are, what has shaped them. And so here in, um, in, in Greensboro, at the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance, we created this curriculum to be just that. And I was so excited to be a part of it. We pulled from um, curriculum from Facing History and Ourselves, amazing curriculum. And students started this unit off by creating identity bags. This is an example of identity boxes. Then we went straight into the history um, using primary sources from some of the survivors that were able to provide us with documents and then just things that we found on our own. And like Dr. Fredette said, the, the primary sources are really what can um, help to bring students into the moment. And, and unfortunately, and, and in some ways, um, in a very, it's, it's very good that there's still actual live footage online right now of this event. And um, that is also something that um, depending on your students developmental level and uh, maturity level is something that is, is a really valuable tool to use also. But here, if you look at the screen, you have two different vantage points of this event happen, um, having been uh, presented by the media and, and having been created in terms of flyering and newspapers. So um, yeah. I think it's important to, to teach the primary history and that's just what this unit includes. Um, my students also were able um, to take a visit to the Beloved Community Center and speak with Reverend Nelson Johnson, one of the survivors. Our unit culminated in a, a um, sort of a, a way that we could speak to the recommendations from the um, TRC report. Um, and we had a, a large kind of social justice gathering and we spoke directly to those, um, to those um, demands. And I'm gonna skip over this one right now. And basically what we did was we took each of the recommendations, well, we took a few of them um, and we spoke to what we thought should happen, the students, after having gone through the history and learned about the TRC report and learned about how many of those recommendations had not yet been fulfilled by the city of Greensboro, um, they, they started writing what they thought should happen. And um, it's, it was actually really beautiful to see. Let me zoom in a little bit. You can see one student wrote um, in response to the city should formally recognize that events of 19... Of, of November 3rd, 1979 provided a tra tragic but important occasion in our city's history. It should make a proclamation that lifts up the importance of that date in the, in the history of the city. And then one of my students who I can see his face right now, he said, actually care, pay attention to this event. And I, and, and I can speak to that particular student. He had not learned this and these were seniors. That's a, a caveat that I should have mentioned before. These were seniors in high school. And the emotion that I got from a lot of them was anger and like confusion, like why have I never heard about this? And I'm a senior about to graduate high school. So, um, so, so this is important for, for, you know, students to learn. And I think this curriculum that the Greensboro Historical Teaching Alliance has created in conjunction with so many, many people, including the survivors, um, including lawyers, um, and people who are invested in, in this information and this, pro, this TRC process becoming more public, um, it's so important for our students to have this information. So I'll uh, turn it back over to you, Marsha. So I, I know that, uh, that uh, the Beloved Community Center has been getting a lot of calls about the TRC process. And um, so I, I went over and talked with Joyce Johnson about that because as part of reparations that, is, that are being talked about now, and this is what she told me. Um, 
She said, with the increase in consciousness of folks due to the death of George Floyd and others and the spread of COVID, especially with the disproportionate impact on black and brown people, there has been an uptick in awareness of systemic racism and there has been a sharp increase in the number of inquiries in setting up local, state and national TRC processes across the country. Like the sit-ins, it is possible that the G Greensboro TRC might provide a model for the nation. And you can go to the Beloved Community Center website for more information, which is listed on the next slide. And we just want to give a little plug for our, our unit. Um, it's available on our website. We, the mini unit is not there. You can email us if you're interested in that. And then for more information, the beloved community center is a, a plethora of information. And then there's also the exhibit at the Greensboro History Museum. Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you. And uh, we got quite a few questions. So I'm gonna go to one, I'm gonna put this out to, um, to the panel. Uh, this is from YouTube, but the question was raised, why do we even have to use the word controversial? If it's history, it's just history. You know, we don't have a problem. Someone gave the example, we don't have the problem of teaching Hamilton and it's a part of history. So why do we have uh, the word controversy associated with uh, the topics we discussed today? And that's, that's to the floor. Um, so I guess what I would say is I, I think that is a good point. I mean, I, I think that's, it's very fair to say that we don't want to put certain subjects in this box and make them seem like something that's different or should, um, you know, that we should avoid. That being said, I think, number one, this is a language that's used in a broader literature that's become more popular in the last 10 years on teaching controversies specifically. Um, but number two, I would say it's, it's an unfortunate reality is, is what I would probably answer. I, I wish that we lived in a world in which not all of these things were controversial. But the fact is, I think for now, it's, it's an imperfect way to signal to, to ourselves and other educators, we don't have to tell the students that they're controversial, but when we're talking with other educators, we can know to be prepared for a potential um, response from our students or, and the community when we deal with that. And, and again, I, I wouldn't use the language of this is gonna be controversial to your students, but I think it is a, it's a way of just dealing with the reality that we have now. Okay. And does anyone think the, um, that council culture has affected how we talk about controversial subjects? That would be to anyone. Um, I guess, sorry to answer all the questions, but um, I would say that it has in some ways. Uh, and I think that cancel culture is often depicted as one as a partisan perspective and as a liberal partisan thing, but I think it is both both sides of the political aisle have a tendency toward this. Um, but I think that what we can do in our classrooms is to talk instead about my job is to teach all of history. And it doesn't mean that everything I teach uh, you will agree with or um, that you will necessarily support, but I am trying to teach the most, um, complete history that I can. So you're going to learn about people that you like. You're going to learn about people that you don't like. Um, but it's important that we understand the fullness of history. Okay, thank you. And Eric, I'm going to put this question to you. All of these are coming from our uh, chat box here, our question and answer box. But what have you done or how did you handle uh, someone in your class that was upset or angry when you were teaching a, a specific or a particular subject? How did you handle it? Sure. So that happens often, right? Because I always um, speak in all the courses. Um, and, and unfortunately, we can um, often know that we're going to have a very different demographic of students given the particular class that we're teaching. So in some of my classes, where most of the students might be white, uh, male, um, they're, they're my, my my vantage point and I always would come with like you know well y'all let me I'm speaking to you as a black woman in America 
And so then they would say, oh, because that means that my pers- I'm telling you what my perspective is and I'm teaching you at the same time that you have a perspective, that you have a starting point. And so if, if those feelings arise, first, they would have already known that um, I'm not here to be a boogeyman to get you because I, will, I, I try to, to, to create that relationship piece in the beginning right? And so they know that. So I will always go back to that. Sweetie, I'm not here to get you. I'm sorry that you're upset. Let's take a break. That doesn't make the history any less true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I deal with the, you know, frustration. Students can always take a break because listen, learning is an embodied experience. You're not going to come into and learn and learn something and, and not think that you won't be changed. Now, there are a lot of classrooms where that happens, but that doesn't happen in, in a classroom where students are being activated to make decisions, become participants in their world. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Fredan, I'm gonna come back to you right quick. As a teacher, as a former teacher myself, this is what popped in my head uh, when you mentioned it, but you talked about the five minute rule. Uh, but a question is out there that says, um, and I'm gonna read it verbatim, for the five minute rule, how do you balance having students argue a different viewpoint and not stimulate those views. For example, I would feel uncomfortable to ask students to argue in favor of slavery from the perspective of a plantation owner. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think that's where the idea of different techniques work for different things. I would not use the five minute rule in that case. I think that the five minute rule implies that you have a discussion where you are gonna open students up, first of all, to saying their perspective on something and you want to engage with two different sides of the perspective, treating both of them as equally viable. I talk all the time with my students about the fact that I think there are different controversies. Some controversies we need to understand and we need to potentially sympathize with multiple perspectives. And some of them we do not want to. I, for example, I use the issue of white supremacy. I do not, I think we should go into the classroom as teachers and say, white supremacy is wrong. Um, And so we can take a stand on that. Um, And so if I were to teach slavery, I say it like I haven't taught slavery a lot, (laughs) and I were to teach pro-slavery arguments, I would have students using primary documents and analyzing and saying, all right, well, what are the arguments they are making here? I think it's important to understand and analyze their arguments because I think it's important to know that it helps us understand why slavery lasted as long as it did and why it was so hard um, to remove. Um, and why we live with the impacts today. But that doesn't mean that you should necessarily say, all right, for five minutes, we're all gonna be slaveholders. Um, so in that sense, I would just say that the five minute rule would not work in that context. Okay, and I'm gonna get one more question because uh, looking at the time, we're gonna have to shut it down in a little bit. But uh, Marsha, uh, I want to ask you this uh, from the a question from the panel, from the uh, audience. With the time crunch, having to get in so much teaching to the test, um, but you said you had a mini curriculum. How have you, the experience, what experiences have you gotten from the pilot programs, from the teachers who've done the pilot about incorporating or implementing that mini, mini we, curriculum? We really haven't had anybody that has used them. We just um, developed the mini unit because teachers were saying we don't have time. And so it's fairly new and we don't have, um, we don't have anybody who's done the pilot on the three day mini unit. But can I just add a little something to one of the questions I saw in the chat? Yes, go ahead. Okay, there is one, uh, how do you define truth or something like that? Or what is your definition of truth? And I think for, um, for our unit, what we, what we kept going back to was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Like that was because it was based on a broad swath of the community. And so that's where we, we kept going back for that. Going okay. back to that report to anchor us. Well, judging from the uh, participation from today, you know, it looks like, like I'm, I'm finding we're gonna have to do part two. Uh, I already spoke with someone earlier, like maybe the next one will be talking history because uh, even though this is primarily for educators, it wasn't meant to be, but we had a lot of educators on there and that's great. But uh, these are some kitchen table issues that anybody can benefit from. So. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Just as you visit it for this podcast, continue to go to www.greensborohistory.org and select the Discover and Learn tab to listen again or learn more about many other subjects. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
and please stop by the museum when you can. We're located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. Hours vary, so visit our website or call 336-373-2043 for details. Once again, thank you, and keep tuning in to History Notes.